You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, everybody. Robert Carrillo here in the Metro Vision Studios, where I'm in the big studio this morning. This is a, a, a change for us. This is the first time we're going live from here, so hopefully everything goes great. Um, but I want to welcome you back to the Hebrew study, the book of Hebrews. And uh, again, just encourage you for taking the time to go deep and to learn deeper things of God. And that's a lot of what the book of Hebrews is, is keep growing, keep going deep and uh, keep growing your knowledge of God and Jesus. And of course, the book of Hebrews is uh, outside of the Gospels, uh, the, the, the best book to get to know Jesus and all about him. Uh, we're in the thick of it. We're now on chapter seven and, um, we're, we're getting into some deeper things that, uh, are somewhat mysterious and, uh, but really point out a lot about Jesus still. I mean, the argument, remember that the book of Hebrews is like a sermon that's laying out a case for Jesus and how great he is. The, the key word being, uh, greater than or superior than, um, and we're in chapter one, chapter seven, and he ended chapter six saying, you know, Jesus has ended on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, you know, and, and, and I mentioned a little bit that we'd be, we'd be talking more about him and chapter seven's kind of Melchizedek's chapter, you know, and, and, um, so we're going to dive right on in. And if you want to learn more about Melchizedek, um, I suggest you go ahead and buy our book. This is a, a book that I and John, John Oaks and I read, wrote together, excuse me. And, um, John, uh, dug deep about Melchizedek and, um, we'll give you some more background on him. But, uh, for now, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and start reading in verse one and I'll give you a little bit of background. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God. Okay. So Melchizedek, he's this mysterious figure that, we really don't know much about. He, uh, he pops up in, in Genesis 14 where Abraham, after winning a, a decisive victory in battle, goes and gives a tithe to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who is both a king and a priest. And we don't know where he came from. We don't know what happened afterwards. He's king of Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, Salem, or the city of peace, Shalom. Um, it's the same, it's all the same word. His name, Mel, Melech and Sedek, means king of righteousness, Melchizedek. Um, he's, he says, so, so it says, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God and most high. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything first. The name, First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. So uh, typically the priest was a descendant of Aaron. And if you remember, Aaron uh, was with Moses, uh, brother to Moses, and and was appointed the high priest and all his descendants uh, are the high priests. So they get their priesthood from their lineage through Aaron. Uh, Melchizedek is not of the order of Aaron. Melchizedek was long before. Melchizedek was from the time of Abraham. 
And so this is long before Moses. And, um, and we don't really know much about him. Where does he come from? Who is he exactly? There is a whole mythology behind him and, and thoughts and I, stories and ideas of who he is, where he came from and where he falls in the lineage. And, 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 um, there's all that information, but really from, from our Bibles, we, we don't know much. You know, he, he pairs very little, but very, uh, highly honored, highly honored, very, prestigious, very, uh, revered person in, in this. And, um, and so he says that he is, he is, um, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. And, and, and the author is basically saying, look, he doesn't fall under any of the normal rules. He doesn't come from Aaron. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he, what happened to him afterwards. It's all a mystery. And he's just this great person that even Abraham, the father of the Jews, which, by the way, makes him a non-Jew because he's not a child of Abraham. Uh, but Abraham comes and gives him a tithe. That's a big deal. He gives a tithe to the Lord by giving it to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is absolutely connected to God. The God, he's a high priest of Yahweh. What's, that's a big deal. And this is, uh, in the, in the time of Abraham. So the Jews were not a people yet. They, they were not known yet that, you know, this is the very, you could say the very first Jew, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And then, uh, all the, all the, the, the brothers of Joseph and the tribes. And, you know, you go down the line and then you get to Moses and, and then, then Israel starts, right? So, with with Joshua. So you see all this lineage but but he is not of that. He does he doesn't fall into those earthly categories. He's a mysterious figure. He's powerful. He's highly honored. He's somebody that even Abraham would pay homage to, would approach God Yahweh through Melchizedek. And he says just think verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that descendants of Levi, who become priests to collect the tenth from the people, that is from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descendants from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blesses, blessed him who had the promises. And without, and without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by the people who die, but the other case by whom, whom is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek made Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. And he's making the argument that even, you know, that normally the Jews give a tenth, they pay a tenth according to the law to the Levites, right? And the, and, that, and that supports the Levites and, and that takes the care of the priesthood and, and those that have been, that have been set apart or sacred or, or sanctified for service to God. The Levite, remember they were the ones, they didn't get land because they served the Lord and, and their people are in direct service to God. But what he's, he's making the argument, look, even the people who are in direct service to God, who hold a special role with God and serve God, even they gave a tenth 
to Melchizedek through Abraham. You know, and he makes the argument that they weren't born, but through his genes, so to speak. So even the descendants, even the Levi, the priesthood of the Jews gives a tenth to Melchizedek, who's chosen by God. So Melchizedek is greater than them, than the priesthood of the temple or the tabernacle, and and obviously greater than um, Abraham because he pays, he gives the money to Melchizedek. He says the greater blesses the lesser, right? So he's, you can see he's kind of lining everything up to show you who's at the top. It's Melchizedek. And where does Jesus come, where does his priesthood come from? The same as Melchizedek's. In other words, it's appointed by God. It's set up by God himself. And then he said, and then it says in verse 11, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. So he asks him, you know, he says, well, if this priesthood that every Jew knew had, had, was, was perfect, if it was everything it needed to be, why would that, why would Jesus have to come from a different priesthood from the order of Melchizedek? You know, and he, in, in a sense, he kind of already answered that question, showing how the priests had to make sacrifices for their own sin. So the priests were, they were humans. They're people just like us. So in many ways, this is an earthly priesthood. Jesus, Melchizedek, come from more a heavenly priesthood or God's priesthood ordained by God, even though the, the Levites or the sons of Aaron were also, they were blessed by God and chosen by God, but he's making a distinction, right? And he's showing that one is limited, one is not, and one is earth, really more earthly, one is more heavenly. And he, and he says, so this, this priesthood could only get people so far, right? Could only do so much for our relationship with God, the earthly priesthood. It took the heavenly priesthood. It took a high priest from the order of Melchizedek to get us right with God. So he says, and he's setting that argument up that, you know, I'm giving you a little bit of preview. This is where he's going with that. He says, um, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. So he says, you know, he basically, he's showing that, that, um, even, you know, that neither Melchizedek nor Jesus came from the tribe of Levi, which is the, the, the normal genealogy of a priest, but he comes from outside that. So for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. We know that Jesus is the son of David, right? David the king, and that's the, he's from the, from the family of Judah. And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this didn't come from Moses. This isn't something Moses set up. This is something set up by God. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation to his, excuse me, to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So he says, so, so Jesus never claimed to be an ancestor of Aaron or that Aaron was his ancestor. He never claimed to be in that lineage. 
his claim to fame, you could say, his claim to power, his claim to prestige comes directly from the fact that he lived an indestructible life and the power of his life. Okay, he was his own witness in a sense, his own testimony, the power of his life was what showed everybody. You know, that's very important because like, I'll give you an example of how this works. Um, and, and many of us know, especially again, if you've been around a long time, you, you see this. Many of us became Christians when we were younger, especially those of us who were old timers. I mean, obviously if it's in the past, we're younger, but I mean a lot younger. Like I was 19 when I became a Christian. Uh, Michelle was 17 when she became a Christian. When we became Christians, our families just thought we were just, you know, my, my family thought I was nuts. I was, you know, breaking away from our traditional church and going to a church that is so different. And this church doesn't have crosses anywhere. This church doesn't have big buildings. Um, this church meets in high schools and and they, so it made me, to them, I, my, my new church was very suspicious. What is this thing you're doing? And why are you getting baptized again? And, and it was very, uh, it was held under a lot of suspicion in my family. What in the world are you doing? Uh, by certain people, not everybody. Some people in my family actually were very supportive, but, um, but some people, and even, and especially some of my friends, um, who just thought I was nuts, you know, what in the world are you doing? And I got dived into church, got totally involved. And, and my story is a very typical story. Lots of people, when they become Christians, when they join our church, they're very young, a lot of them in college or right out of college or, or even high school sometimes. And, and everybody's like, what in the world? Because we're suddenly, we've done a 180. We're, we're living a totally different life. We're, we've dived into this new Christian life and, and we're doing things different. We're living different and it's under suspicion. But as time goes by, people who criticized me, people who thought I was nuts, people who thought I'd made a big mistake got quieter and quieter and more and more supportive. Now, 38 years later, they look at my life and they see what's happened in my life. My marriage, my children, my relationships, my friendships, the things that I've been able to be a part of. And that is a testimony to my religion. That is a testimony to who I am and what I've done. And, and I'm, I'm proud to anybody. Look, look at my life. You want to know what happens when a person devotes their life to God? Look at my life. You know, and, 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 and don't misunderstand. I don't mean that I'm perfect or flawless or anything like that. I've made my mistakes, but my life is very different. I've been able to avoid a lot of the major mistakes that the average person makes. Why? Because I'm so wise and awesome. Not at all. Because I've been following Jesus and he's helped me steer through lots of traps. And some things are not in our control. They happen to us. And even those things I've been able to overcome and get through the difficulties Again, because of Jesus, because of the life that I have chosen to follow the Bible, to live according to the truth. So no matter what Satan or the world dishes out at me, I'm able to overcome. I'm able to keep going and live a life that is victorious on many fronts. I, I, there's anybody I'd, I'd, I'd trade lives with. I, I love my life. It's not perfect. 
we've got issues and, you know, we have things that we have to deal with. Just I say we, I'm talking about my, my wife and I, we have to deal with things in life and family and the world and stuff, just like anybody else. But except we have this huge, huge help. And that is Jesus who helps us through all these things, who helps us find peace when things are totally chaotic, who helps us hold on to hope no matter how difficult things are, who helps us. And we've been through a lot. We've been through all kinds of, we've been through everything from natural disasters, terrorist attacks, health issues, all this stuff that we've been through, you know, robberies, attacks, all, all, all these different kinds of things that we get through because of Jesus. So the testimony of who I am is in my life. My life is the testimony of the power of God. Jesus' life, obviously way more, you know, I mean, the power of his life, the power he displayed, healing people, raising the dead, walking, I mean, all the miracles, the truth that he said, the challenges he made, they, they, that's, that's what he means that, 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 um, the one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regular, of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. You know, I mean, Jesus, Jesus was amazing. And that's the testimony. The reason we have the gospels is so we can understand who Jesus is so that we can put our faith in him. People, you know, we, I don't expect anybody to put their faith in Jesus and follow him if they haven't read the gospels, if they haven't heard the story, if they don't know the cross. But when they have heard the story of his life and they have heard the cross, I always see how it changes people dramatically. It changes how they think. It changes how they live. But they have to really know it. Most people, you know, they, they, they read a little bit of Bible. They go to church and get a little teeny bit there and they watch movies and they, and it's just simply not enough. You, you don't, you, in a sense, you're too far from Jesus still. You have to get up close and personal. You have to be there with him. And that's what begins to transform a life and change a life. Walking with Jesus. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. That's what changes a life. And that's what makes a life so incredible. And he says, he says, um, um, let's see where I found my place. Uh, let's see, where are we? So he, so, so he's, you know, he started out saying if perfection could have been achieved through the, the, the earthly priesthood, then there would have been no change. Obviously, that was limited. This, the power, the, the, the priest that who lived an indestructible life, that's who you want to follow. I remember I heard this little story one time of, of, as, as an old African man who somebody asked why, you know, half your country is Muslim, half your country is Christian. Why did you choose Jesus? And he said, I can go to the tomb of Muhammad, but the tomb of Jesus is dead. That's who I'm going to follow, the one who did not die. Of course, right? The one who has the power over death, the one who rose from the dead, the one who ascended to heaven. That's who we follow, right? So, and, and then in verse 17, so it says, For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. And, um, you know, and, and we're referring, we're referring back and forth 
to Genesis 14, Psalm 110. And then verse 18, it says, The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. This is a big statement right here. Let me say it again. Let me read it again. I want you to really think about what he's saying here. He says, the former regulation, in other words, the rules that used to be in place, is set aside. They're set aside. Because, excuse me, because it was weak and useless. Wow. That's quite a statement. So the regulations, they were weak and ultimately useless. Now I'm throwing in the ultimately because they helped at a time, but in the end, they don't really make the difference. They don't save you. No one is saved by the law. Nobody's saved by following regulations. And he says, for the law made nothing perfect. Okay. So now, now people, um, I know this is a, this is an interesting thing because a lot of times we wrestle with, wait, wait a second. So why do we have the old Testament if it's useless and it doesn't perfect anybody? You know, I think of it as guardrails, you know, that, that you have this wall on the right and wall on the left. It's not going to make you a great driver. It's going to keep you from driving off the cliff, but that's it. If we're talking about you being healthy and having a great life, those walls aren't really going to help you. What were they there for? Well, they were there to help you not go off the cliff and they serve their purpose. And that's great. And God, God made it very clear that you have to obey those laws. Those, those walls are in place for a reason, but now we're under something new that now the goal is to, you know, be healthy So those walls, they're not so necessary if you're following a great driver and you're imitating the car in front of you. You're not trying to drive off the cliff. You're not doing stupid things. You're, if the person in front of you and you're following him to a great life, you're not going to be doing stupid things. And, and those walls are no longer necessary or they're fulfilled in that They were built to keep you safe. Now Jesus comes to fulfill the law. And if you follow him, you are safe in all things. So you're following him. The walls become obsolete. They're not so necessary anymore. Um, That's a very crude description. It doesn't, you know, doesn't cover everything by any means, but it's a simple way to understand you know, another thing that, that I've been asked is, well, why would God change things? Why, why was it not okay for them, but it's okay for us? And in, in, in one sense, you know, I, I was, I, I explain it this way. When my kids were four and five, they were not allowed to go out of the house without asking permission. Even if they went, wanted to play in the front yard or the backyard only, they still had to ask so that we knew where they were. Now, when they were eight or nine, they would want to go ride their bikes or their skateboard or whatever. They still had to ask me permission. They could go outside in the playground, in the, in the front yard or the backyard. They didn't have to tell us. But now they did have to tell us if they're going to leave the yard. And we had to know where they were. Okay. And then when they became teenagers, 
They weren't asking. We lived right across the street from a park. They didn't ask permission to go to the park. They would just go and hang out. And they were always within sight. I could see the park. But but they didn't ask anymore. But they did have to ask if they were going to go anywhere in the car or even ride their bikes somewhere. I couldn't see them anymore. So with every step and level of maturity, the rules kind of changed. There were different rules in place. But the overarching rule never changed. And that was be safe, be where I can see you and, 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 and be safe. So in one sense, my intent never changed was to protect them, was to watch over them and make sure they were doing well. According to their level of maturity. Okay. The rules kind of adjusted to meet the need of where they were at. And God was building a people that he was raising up. Okay. So when they were teens, it would be silly for me to enforce the rule that you have to ask me permission to go in the backyard. They're teenagers. Of course you would, you would allow them to go in the backyard. But at when they were little, that was a very important rule. So again, this is a crude analogy, but it kind of helps us understand why something ends and something else starts. The goal is the same. The goal is that they could be with God. The goal is to be able to communicate with God, be close to God. Always that's the goal. The rules were there to enforce that. The regulations, the law was there to help us. However, the law was limited. Just like now my kids are all adults. They live in other cities. They don't even live in the same city I live in. I still want them to take care of themselves. I texted my daughter this morning. How are you? Been thinking about you, praying for you to have a great day. She texts me back. Love you, dad. I'm doing good. Da, da, da. You know, and that's, that's that we still communicate. I still want her to be safe, to have a good life. She still wants to be close to me. Um, I don't have to make a rule for her to stay near me. We have a relationship now. We love each other. She loves me. I'm her dad. I love her. She's my daughter. Same thing with my daughter in Texas. We talk regularly. Same thing with my son in San Diego. We talk regularly. We have a great relationship. That always was the goal is that we have a great relationship that we're close. Now that closeness was for much more for their safety when they were little because they didn't know how to make decisions. They didn't know how to distinguish between right and wrong, but now they do. And now it's really for them to live what's right and do what's right and say no to what's wrong. But I still want a relationship with them and I still want them to do great. And so does, I hope that helps understand a little bit how something becomes useless or weak or, or, or is no longer important. It says, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became priests with an oath when God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Okay, so he's talking about how, you know, again, the earthly priesthood, they had to take oaths. This was a big ceremony. He said, this priesthood was all done by God. God set it all up. God made it all happen. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Okay, because this oath was taken with God, because this, all of this was set up by God, the covenant, okay? Let me give you a little plan, uh, explanation. A covenant is, it's kind of like a contract. It is a, it is a commitment between two parties, right? It's a commitment of one to take care of another. It's a commitment where one 
says, I will do this. Okay. And here's what I expect you to do. And, and, um, another day we'll study out, uh, chesed, which is a very important word. It's the, it describes the covenant between everyone and God, but also the covenant between people and in a relationship, the loyalty expected that is good and right that I do for you. You do for me. We love each other. We we're devoted to one another. We help each other. Um, he says, because of this, Jesus has become the guarantor or guarantor of a better covenant. So better than what? Well, better than the old covenant, the covenant that Moses set up that, that the Jews have been living under. Now there have been many of those priests. And, and I would say this just as a reminder, remember this book, there, there are several audiences that are listeners here. And this is really important to understand that in any time you read the scriptures, there's the, 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 the audience that's listening in that time and place. And there are things very much directed at them, right? There's an overarching principle and then there's specifics directed at them. Then there's a lesson that is generally to all the hearers, uh, at, at that time or that kind of place. And then there's just a universal understanding that is really the principle, the heart of it. What we can learn from this. In our book, we, we actually have, uh, there's a breakdown that John put this part together of the, um, the different way the rabbis taught the scriptures. There was the Peshat, which is the literal factual meaning of the text. What does exactly it say? The Ramaz, which is the suggested meaning of the text. The Derush, which is the meaning arrived after long and careful consideration of the text. And the Sad, which is the inner allegorical and metaphorical meaning of the text. That's that universal principle, right? But it also works on, on, on another level in the, the immediate hearers, the general hearers, and then the faraway hearers, which faraway meaning any country, any time, any century. And so we have that here going on right here because remember, these were Jews, Jewish Christians. And he's making the argument and that don't go back to Judaism. That covenant's no good. Don't go back to the law here. It's funny. I get questions sometimes about why do you, Robert, why, you know, I got a question the other day and there, there, there's nothing wrong with, there's, there's no dumb questions. There's always, you know, sometimes we get curious. I wonder why this or wonder why that. Like, we know the Old Testament says don't make idols, right? So somebody asked the other day, well, why do you use pictures, you know, of things in the Bible? And, and when the Bible says do not create any images of anything under heaven or earth, you know, and, and, um, and then I said, does that person also have a question of why do I have a tattoo? And they said, yeah, that, that's a question too, is when the Bible says do not, you know, mark your bodies and, and, and those are all deuteronical or canonical or, or covenant laws. And, and we're no longer bound to that. And if you want to follow those rules, you know, to obey the Sabbath, you have to go all the way. I mean, there's rules about not cutting the sides of your hair. Then you should have long hair here. You should have the locks, you know, if you're going to go by the law. And that's just what I answered the person. I said, well, one, because I'm not under the law. Those rules are rules in the Old Testament law, and I'm not under those laws. Now, if you want to live under those law, Paul says you got to live by all of them. Either do it partly or do, um, excuse me, if you're going to do it partly, you have to do it all and try to live. But 
What it just said here is that law didn't perfect anybody. So it's a waste of time. And he's going to get even stronger in a few minutes about how wasted and how useless that law is. So sometimes churches get confused on this and they want to enforce some of the Old Testament law. And they pull things like some churches that you have to do the Sabbath, you know, and if you're in sin, if you don't do the Sabbath or a lot of the old school churches would teach that a tattoo is totally sin. And, you know, because of the law. Um, and again, if you're going to follow the law, Paul said, follow it all. If you're not circumcised, I'm sorry, bro, but you need to go get circumcised now. Because if you're going to follow it, follow it all. Paul was actually quite angry when he was saying all this. And he ends that old argument saying, saying, why don't you go all the way and castrate yourself? I mean, he was mad because we have a better covenant. We have a better promise from God. We have a better high priest and a better relationship with God. Why would you go back to the old one? That didn't save anybody. Why would you go back and live under the law? Live in the freedom of Christ, which is... Not a license to sin. It is the freedom to, to follow Jesus and make good decisions about doing what's right and living a good life. That's what it is. Why were we not allowed to make graven images? Because people would worship them. People would tend to go and they would worship these things. They would bow down. They would do stupid things. They would, they, they, they would make sacrifices to these idols. And, and, and so God said, don't make anything under heaven or earth. You know, that means no statues of anything or anybody that's living in, he- in heaven or, or earth. Because why? They would worship them. So when I, you know, I've got a little carved elephant from Africa. I walk by, I don't fall on my knees and worship it. I have no temptation to worship it. It's a cute little reminder of Africa to me. That's it. It doesn't make me struggle. And I'm not bound by the law. I'm not condemned because I have an image of an elephant, you know, and, and we have to, we have to understand that's, that's the difference between the covenants, right? Now, if I did start falling down and bowing down to my little statue of an elephant, then that elephant needs to go. And I need to get anything that I start worshiping besides God is sin. And that, that the new covenant upholds that is what's right. But as far as the law, we're not bound to the law. Now, there are churches that believe that. There, that's why some churches, you will not see a cross. You will not see a picture, a painting. Actually, if you notice the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which was very influenced by Islam, Islam allows no images of anything. That's why if you go into a mosque, all the decoration is geometrical and it's... Uh, calligraphy is the only decoration they have. You won't see pictures of animals or plants or trees or, or people or anything like that. They influence the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has no statues. Now, they do have icons, which are paintings. And then, of course, you go to the Catholic Church, it's the opposite. They have statues and paintings everywhere. Um, and do they worship those statues? Do they worship and those are statues not of animals and things. These are statues of Mary and Joseph and the saints. Every Catholic will tell you they do not worship them. Now, whether they do or not, that's up to them. God knows that's in their hearts. Um, but, but we're not under the law. It's not a sin for us to eat shellfish, even though the Bible prohibits it. Because that's the Old Testament law. 
And, and I was telling that one brother, if you're going to follow the law, you also have to make sure that none of your clothes is from mixed fabrics. That's also the law. You got to let your hair grow out. You got to go out and get circumcised. You got to, you know, you got to follow it all or none of it. But even following it all is really stupid because it's not going to save you. So that's the argument he's making. And he says, and he says, verse 23, now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So Jesus is the permanent high priest, the forever high priest. He's always there. You get up at 321 in the morning, turn to Jesus and he's there. He's always interceding for you. He's, he's the constant now. He is permanent. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but oath, but the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus the, the, you know, the priests have to make daily sacrifices. And then the big one on the, um, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But Jesus doesn't have to because he made one once and for all. He died on the cross, paid for all our sins once and for all. The only thing you have to do is be in Jesus, which is putting your faith in him, repenting of your sins, being baptized and living in him. Once you do that, you're in Jesus. And you're covered for life. I mean, it's the best life insurance you're going to get anywhere. And and this is Jesus. It's much better than the insurance you're going to get from earthly priests who have to continually make sacrifices. And in the end, those sacrifices don't even cover all your sins. So only Jesus. And that's the argument he's making to the Jews. So they understand. But it's also a principle for all of us that nothing else in this world is going to save us. Not money, not talent, not wealth, not prestige, not power, not good looks, not marrying the right person or having the right boyfriend or girlfriend, not, not, not anything else, not titles, nothing else is going to save us. Nothing else is going to give us an indestructible life except Jesus. That's it. And I think that's a huge important thing for us because for them, obviously, the, the Jewish Christians, their nature would be to go back to Judaism. It was safer. It was accepted. He's challenging them not to do that because Jesus is the better high priest. For us, the temptation would be go back to doing denominational Christianity. What is denominational Christianity? It's what the average person who, who calls himself a Christian lives. In other words, it's a very watered-down Christianity. It's going to church often, maybe not every Sunday, but often. It's reading the Bible every once in a while. It's trying to be a nice person. Unless somebody does something really mean to you or acts like a jerk, then you act like a jerk back at them. It's trying to do what's right. It's, but you know, they're having some pet sins that nobody else knows or, or that you allow yourself and, and, and that's the average Christian life. 
not much better. Actually, research has shown that the average quote unquote Christian's life is really not any more moral or more disciplined than the average non-Christian person's life. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a life of a disciple, somebody living in Jesus, devoted to Jesus, walk, walk in their daily life in Jesus, who, 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 who is part in Jesus. So, so that's a whole different life. In that life, the high priest covers forever. He protects you forever. So we'll stop there. That's the end of chapter seven. Great chapter, fantastic chapter, chapter. We're in the meat of it now. So we'll end there and I'll see you chapter eight. You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com 